Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? Have you done your homework? What was my homework, Alex? I set you to reread something, anything. Oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. And I did. I have. I've been reading new things and rereading old things. And actually, I didn't make it terribly easy on myself because I chose something quite long. I reread Bleak House. Good Lord. Not in a week. No, I had been doing it before, but I do often, I don't know whether listeners tell us how you read because it's quite interesting the way people do it. I do often have a couple on the go, but I can't have like four books on the go. I can either have one or two. I can't really have much more than two. No, because one always slides off, doesn't it, really? Truthfully. Bleak House is sort of my old one. Mm. And then I had a new one alongside it, you know, a couple of different new ones, because Bleak House, as we know, is quite long. And I'm here to tell you, shockingly, that Bleak House is really good. It's really good. Isn't it? And I I actually shocked another editor at the TLS because I said I would be reading it. And then, then I said, I admitted, and I will confess this I'm always confessing things on the podcast some of the very long lists of things you know in the legal bits it gives you very very long lists of things like the sort of paper that the the lawyers use for some of their depositions I may have read those a little bit quicker than the, the other bits yes and then, you felt that you got the gist I may have skimmed a little bit at just a few of the slightly longer lists and the thing just the thing that struck me about it was that I know that sometimes um, people are a bit sniffy about Dickens, aren't they? Um, they can be, and they say he can be terribly sentimental and sort of overloady. And these are all criticisms that only work if you mind things being sentimental and overloaded. And I actually don't. Well, I mind it if it's sentimental. I mind it if it's manipulation or if it's not earned. Then I do mind it very much. But actually, some of these things, which are these very pathetic scenes in Bleak House with Joe the little boy who's the the crossing sweeper it's just terribly well drawn and very very sad and you can also feel even though the story is very much a kind of a a story in itself you can feel the rage underneath it at this Mm. society that allows his life to be so worthless I found it very very strong and you know Dickens in good shock that's what I'm saying to you this week Alex (laughs) Well, thank you very much for that. I will alert the Academy immediately. Who knew? Well, you know, I think we better get on with this week because we have a real treat. We will be meeting novelist Samantha Harvey as she sets off to space and Miranda France stays closer to home with a fascinating tour of the British archipelago. But first, we're going to talk about a new novel, Orbital, published last week. It's set on a spaceship. And if that conjures up images of people in silver suits racing around, possibly shooting the odd alien, well, that couldn't be further from what this book is. It is, in fact, rather difficult to sum up. I thought first maybe you could call it a meditation or a set of reflections, though that makes it sound too static. The last novel that we got from this novelist was The Western Wind, a murder mystery set in the 15th century told backwards. So you can see that she's not afraid to change direction. So instead of me failing to do orbital justice, we're going to talk to its author, Samantha Harvey, directly. We're really delighted that she can join us today. Sam, welcome and thank you so much for talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So orbital, even though, as I said, it is set in space, there's no science fiction here, is there? And and I'm going to say something that might sound like a weird thing to say about a book set in the orbit of the Earth as it is, but it feels very real and very grounded. How did you manage that? 
it struck me that when I started thinking about this book, that there really isn't very much space realism out there. There's lots of sci-fi sort of futuristic stuff, you know, especially in films, mm. but also in novels. But there's very little, if any, space realism. And yet space is in space travel and humans in space is a reality and has been for a long time. And the the ISS has been continually uh, inhabited by humans for 23 years now. So it seemed to me something that needed to be written about somehow. It was somewhere that fiction could go that wasn't just for science. You know, we tend to think that fiction can only deal with sci-fi, with sort of often dystopian ideas of space. But actually, there are humans up there right now orbiting around the Earth 16 times every day. It's extraordinary. And that's what I wanted to write about, just the the extraordinariness of that bit of reality, of realism. Mm. And though it's completely extraordinary when you stop to think about it, and what you do in the book is you balance the everydayness, as it were, what they eat, how they sleep, when they get up, what jobs they do, the everydayness and the extraordinariness, which involves a new sunrise every hour and a half, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. I sort of love that. The, all the contradictions that come with that setting of a space station, you, you have the contradiction, of, like you said, of real mundaneness. You know, the, the days are, are scheduled. They have to do everything to the letter. They, don't, they have very little free time. There's a lot of, you know, dusting and housework that they have to do and hoovering. And, and at the same time, they're orbiting at 17,500 miles an hour around the Earth. Then there's the the claustrophobia of being inside this little tin can, and then the agoraphobia of being in space. There's nobody else anywhere near them. Um, there's the all the, the sort of cognitive dissonance that they experience. The astronauts looking down at the Earth and seeing this seamless, boundaryless, beautiful, fragile planet, and knowing that everything that mankind does and and we see this particularly at the moment is is dictated by boundaries and territory and a lack of harmony between nations and i think that all of these contradictions were really really interesting to me and and also the fact that you know the iss itself is kind of sci-fi you know it's this incredible piece of human kit um it's the most expensive man-made object in existence and yet it's also quite retro, you know, it's quite vintage. It's quite old, it's becoming rattly and aged and it has a crack in it and it's going to be deorbited soon. So you've got this weird kind of mix of, of the futuristic and the, and the retro. I find it all really fascinating. I love that way, Sam, that you brought into focus how they are at once in such jeopardy in the sense that anything could go wrong, some little thing that they couldn't possibly fix might go wrong and that would just be utter catastrophe. And in another way, they're totally cosseted. They're in this little bubble and they're safer. They think to themselves, well, we're going to be in more danger when we get back to earth. And having to hold in mind this sort of constant presence of death, the possibility of death, and the fact that they just are cocooned in another kind of way was was such an interesting balance in the novel. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Exactly as you describe it, you know, in a, in a way, there's, it's an incredibly safe place. There's nothing to fall off. <laughs> there are very few ways to hurt yourself. You're unlikely to get unwell. Everyone's quarantined before they go up there. And you have ground crews looking out for you every moment of every day. Your whereabouts is exactly known. And should anything go wrong, there is a backup plan and there's a backup backup plan and another 18 backup plans behind that. So it's, it is, it's, everything about space is this strange uh, kind of contradictions of existence that astronauts have to deal with. And I find that really interesting as a, as a kind of, to explore in fiction, I suppose, this, this weird, as I said before, this strange dissonance that they all live with. Mm. You said it was about that you're looking down on the earth and seeing it being fragile and also the the boundaries. I was going to talk about boundaries because also it seemed to me sort of slightly about boundaries between people. I mean, certainly been the on that they can see them on the earth and they can see geographical boundaries, but you know, not the kind of man-made imposed ones. But also there's a the feeling between the astronauts themselves when they sort of they have a bit of a group mind, don't they? They're very much individuals, but they do they sort of sometimes think the same and dream the same. Yeah, and I had to I had to sort of take some creative liberties with that because I read a lot of stuff by astronauts and cosmonauts. There's so much material out there. I mean, they write books for a start, that's helpful. And there are lots of journals online that you can read that astronauts have written on the NASA website, for example. And I read so much and lots of themes kept repeating, but something that I couldn't really get to was what their experience of one another is like. They also seem incredibly sort of businesslike and civil with one another. And so I had to kind of imagine what that might be like, that you're there with usually five other people. Sometimes it's a bit, you know, slightly more or less. But so I begin the novel saying, you know, sometimes they dream the same dreams. Actually, astronauts won't be drawn on on their dreams in space. People often ask them. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, I'm not telling. I'm not telling. (laughs) You'll never know. (laughs) Exactly. I feel like they have to share so much of their experience. It seems that maybe they just want to keep some of it to themselves. The wonder of it and sometimes the pain and difficulty of it. So I had to imagine what it would be like for them. And they are quite private in the book. They don't speak to each other that much about matters of the heart but at the same time there they are together and and they are humanity they each represent the rest of humanity that seems very fascinating I can only imagine what that would be like they seem to almost have had a kind of collective agreement and of course you make the obvious point really that they've gone through so much training you know, in real life and also in the backstories of your characters to adapt to the kind of atmosphere and the reality of living away from the earth for months and months on end. But they almost seem to have a collective agreement that they're not going to have emotional conversations. They certainly, you couldn't afford to have a row in space in those confined quarters, but they're just not going to talk about those more abstract kind of emotional aspects and is that something you got from reading so much about astronauts do they do that yeah I mean very much so so everything I read and of course I don't know what it's like to be an astronaut and I'll never get to go to space and that's partly why I wanted to write this book because it's the closest I'll ever get to going there everything I, I read 
that was from an astronaut's perspective was quite private, quite guarded, very managed, very level. They are so highly trained and drilled to, as you say, not have arguments in space, to learn to accommodate one another. And maybe the cost of that is that you have to have relatively shallow dealings with one another. You can't afford to go any deeper because it might spark something, might trigger a disagreement. I mean, you can only imagine what it's like on the ISS at the moment between the Russian cosmonauts and the other astronauts. It's it's hard to imagine. I mean, I think it's an incredible achievement that that Russia and the West have managed to coexist in space for the last year or so. I mean, and that relationship is very ragged, but they are they are coexisting. And you know, I, I wonder often what are their dinner time conversations like? It's mind-boggling to me, you know, the way they they do manage to just seem to get on and to hold back whatever frustrations or differences they have. Mm, yes, it feels like it's about boundaries again. And I was gonna ask you actually about as a terrible geographer myself. I just there was so much geography in this and it was so beautiful <laughs> and so precise and you know you they're watching the the thing come up and they say over the range of mountains I can't even name any of the mountains and you you conjure it up so beautifully and so precisely and I wouldn't normally ask oh how did you prepare for the book or something but I feel like I've got this image of you sitting with a globe you know <laughs> moving it around and seeing what you can see how on earth did you conjure it up so precisely and so beautifully I have a I don't have a globe but I do have a huge world map on the wall right in front of me and I have looked at it so much and I've also looked at footage from space so there is a lot of footage that you can you can look at from is there that you can watch that happening there's a live stream Lucy I only know this because I read Samantha talking about it and then I went on to it and it was dark when there was nothing happening but I will persist but that just seems amazing to me that you can see what they see it's constant isn't it yeah it's magnificent and this is kind of the starting point of my book I guess I would find myself looking at those videos um, just on YouTube or on the NASA website just thinking this is magnificent what we can see just sitting here at my desk I can orbit the earth it's incredible that the technology has brought us that why is nobody writing about this this is so moving so extraordinary and I I wanted to kind of capture that in in words if I could I wanted to see what words could do with the beauty of those images if words could come anywhere close So a lot of my precision or attempted precision around that was from looking at those videos and then looking at the world map, I mapped my orbits onto the map on my wall so I could see exactly where they were at any given time. And there's an orbit map in the book, which I drew up. Um, Yes. Yeah. I couldn't understand it, I'm afraid. I didn't know. It's quite techie, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I understood it more after I'd read the book I looked at it at the beginning because it's there it is right at the very beginning and I thought oh that's not for me I can only do words I I don't understand what's (laughs) going on here and then I did get it a bit more so you know it is you know one doesn't read this book a novel like this we're trying to understand about consciousnesses but I did actually learn things and that's never a bad thing in a novel is it well and and I did too I mean I 
I have always been interested in geography, I suppose, but because I've had, it's quite a lot better now, but because I've had insomnia for such a long time, one of the things I do at night to help me sleep is I list world countries and I can, I can list every country in the world and I can list every American state. And, you know, I, I've just kind of used that as a way of helping me get to sleep. And there's something about that containment of the earth or sort of holding the whole earth in my mind which is what I've been trying to do for the last three years writing this book um it's incredibly comforting to me I think it can seem that the world is so sort of disparate and broken and boundaried and ill at ease with itself and when you can sort of look at it as a whole either by just listing all of the countries in it or or by watching an orbit video or writing about an orbit I find it incredibly consoling that you know we we do live on a small, boundaryless planet, and there is a way of seeing humanity as one. And it sounds uh, hopelessly idealistic, but I, I find that a great comfort. When I was trying to think about how to describe it, in the end, I thought if you had to put it in a box, which of course, what's the point of putting it in a box? But I was trying to make myself. It felt like eco-fiction, like a book to remind us about the beauty of the earth and its existence as one system, not as disparate sort of warring factions. Yeah, I think it probably is eco-fiction. I, I didn't set out to write something that was directly about climate change, but you can't look at the earth or talk about the earth without acknowledging the human impact that we have on it. So I think by default, it is eco-fiction. And I, and maybe more broadly, when I first conceived of this novel, I, I thought of it as space pastoral. I wanted to write, I wanted to write a month in the country in space. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the novel was set over a month initially. And then I, I realized that wasn't working because I had to keep dealing with you know, every day I had to keep dealing dinner times and I was getting bored of writing about them. Um, and I thought, look, actually, a much better way of talking about the, the themes of the book, which, you know, one of which has to be time and the way it's exploded and fragmented in space is to take one exploded day and write about that. that seemed, and then once I decided that the whole thing just kind of fell into place um, after a lot of, of striving and false starts. I think that it is eco-fiction, but it's as much just uh, nature writing about space. And I say pastoral, I guess, because that evokes a sense of nostalgia. And I think when we look at the earth, there is, firstly, there's a sense of nostalgia around the, well, for me, <laughs> around the ISS and, and the fact that soon it will be deorbited. And, and that does mark at the end of an era in space travel, which has been cooperative and peaceful and state-driven, not driven by private entities and corporations. And I think that era is coming to an end and, and we might be the worst for it, but then I'm no expert on this. It just doesn't feel good to me what's happening in space now. It feels like more of the same of what we're doing on Earth. We're just kind of ransacking space in the way that we've ransacked the Earth. So there's that sense of nostalgia for an era that's that's passing in space, but also a nostalgia for, for what we're losing on the earth itself. So you can't really write about the beauty of the earth anymore without writing about loss 
and to some extent grief, which I, I guess goes hand in hand with writing about climate change. So it is all of that, but it also, um, I wanted it to be about just joy, about beauty and joy and rapture, because that's what I feel when I look at the earth from space. I feel those things and I wanted to try to put them into words. It's extraordinary on weather. One of the characters is, before she was an astronaut, she was a meteorologist, and that's her role. In fact, all the astronauts are, look at the weather with her, and there's a, a typhoon at, at one point, isn't there? And you get the sense of this huge jeopardy, obviously, to the people on Earth who are, you know, whose lives may be destroyed by it, and, and you get the sense of it coming. It's a sort of dynamic presence in the novel but it's also of course incredibly beautiful for them to watch from above yeah exactly I find that really interesting when you look at the earth from space and you can look at typhoons happening they use the astronauts on the ISS as kind of early weather warning systems because they can see these things coming and they can they can see the scale of them and they can see if they're escalating um so it's a really good kind of weather station up there but yeah, you see, when you look at a typhoon, it's it's so beautiful. You can see the way the Earth's rotation is is twisting the clouds. That that's what makes the typhoon move in circles because of the the rotation of the Earth. The winds are being kind of pulled up and away from the equator and then dragged back down towards the equator. And it's this lovely movement that's that's really majestic. And, and graceful and beautiful and then of course completely destructive on earth and again we see more and more of those things because of climate change so they're also very worrying so it just keeps coming back to this dissonance and these contradictions of the absolute beauty of these things and the and the destruction and the terror of them I even felt that, I must say, and that, you know, you mentioned grief there and there is, I don't think this is a spoiler because it happens quite early on and then we learn more about it. But one of the astronauts' mother dies when she's in space. And there's just something interesting in any case about the idea that actually people are quite in touch. They get emails. They're mm. in touch with the people that they've left behind. But, of course, that's this monumental moment in her life and she also thinks to herself well if I don't go back to earth it hasn't happened and it's so moving and as we find out more about her mother and more about their relationship and her life in the sky and space it's so moving to, to put that level of sort of emotional distress into such a a pastoral novel as you say that seemed quite a challenge to me yeah, I can't exactly remember where that idea came from. I suppose I was thinking about how detached they are in space from, from their earthly lives and what it would be like for something big to happen uh, in your personal life while you were there and to be able to do nothing about it and to sort of want to go back, desperately want to go back but also not want to, because as you say, if she doesn't go back, then it hasn't happened, you know. And also, I, I suppose the sense that, which is, you know, a fact that always kind of takes me aback, that the Earth is a is a closed system, really. You know, when the astronaut Chie is looking looking down at the Earth and 
She knows that her mother is there somewhere and has died, but she's still there. And she won't ever not be there. You know, we can't escape the atmosphere. You know, unless we're on a rocket, we don't escape it. So everything that everything of her mother is there on the earth and always will be and is contained inside that that kind of dome of the atmosphere. I find that very interesting, both yeah, probably comforting again that nothing is ever completely lost because it can't escape the earth's system. And I imagined looking down at that as an astronaut and feeling perhaps some some comfort from that, that the earth is holding or containing someone you love, even though they're no longer alive, they're still contained within that system. That seemed interesting. It's very moving within the book and her memories of her mother, and that's all about like you said about suspended time as well, isn't it? But generally I thought it was also that it does a very difficult thing because it's a book, I would say, generally, if you think this is okay, about people who are sort of basically happy and fulfilled, certainly in their work. They don't want to be anywhere else, do they? They, Like you said, there's a lot of rapture and, and joy there and, and just, you know, that they're doing what they want to be doing. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I did want to write about joy and happiness. And obviously that's not really rich territory for a novel because novels are so much about conflict and drama is generated by conflict and discord and dissatisfaction. I did consciously want to set out to write a novel that didn't have conflict in it. I mean, there are lots of inherent conflicts, I suppose, and contradictions that we've talked about, but I wanted to write, as, as you have so perfectly said, about people who are content and happy and uh, have complex inner lives and and you know, have to hold all of these difficult contradictions, but essentially it takes place over one day in space, orbiting the earth by people who wouldn't want to be anywhere else and who are filled with a sense of wonder at where they are and the great fortune that has allowed them to be there. There's no terrible ammonia leak or fire or, you know, Alien invasion. Or aliens, yeah. <laughs> no aliens. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, no aliens. <laughs> it's just one one day of rapturous observation of the Earth. And I wanted to see what that what that was like in a novel form. It's sort of part of that project of translating from images to words and to see if the novel could cope with not having conflict in it. Mm. Sam, I have to ask you, you won't be surprised because I've interviewed Sam before and sort of gushed about her novel, The Western Wind, to the point of fan mania, I think you might say, <laughs> because I just think it is one of the most exquisite and powerful novels I've ever read. And what I want to know really is how it relates to this novel, because it strikes me that it's set in 1491 and it's about a village and it does have drama and conflict and in fact, you know, dead body in it. But it's set in a village that's cut off. It doesn't have a bridge. It's cut off from the rest of the world over this, this sort of turbulent river. And I was so interested that you you just mentioned a month in the country because it kind of has a relationship to that book for me. It feels there's a kind of kinship between those two novels, The Western Wind and A Month in the Country. And I just wondered if you'd say something about it. Well, that's interesting because I hadn't really thought 
in that sense about it, but maybe. That's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> no, it's true. Maybe, there you go. Honestly, my entire life is telling writers what I think their books are doing and them saying, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I think writers need to be told what their books are doing. We're the people who know the least of what they're doing. <laughs> but I think you're right. I kind of see now you've said that, that a month in the country could be a sort of bridge, the thing that bridges those two novels because, yeah, you've got the sort of the, the pastoral element that's bridging across both novels and then there's also the sense of confinement churches you know I I love in a month in the country that that sort of just project of the guy I can't remember his name are you know just working away at the church wall to uncover a a mural that was certainly on my mind a bit when I wrote The Western Wind and I really like writing about or in confined spaces I suppose I like to have those confines. The, the Western Wind was the genesis of that, I think, was a confession box. So I, I thought about the confession box as this little theatre in which all the drama of life plays out. They're just two people there playing out the whole majestic human drama. And that was my starting point. And so I and, and in that sense, Orbital is, is not so different. You know, it's this little, relatively little, you know, titanium spaceship in which all the drama of human life is playing out and can be seen so I suppose there are similarities there for sure. I've just made you suggest them there and of course now in yet another leap I'm thinking of the way that you described the part of the confessional box in the western wind it was something newfangled it was a technology wasn't it it had been it was a new thing it had been imported from Rome and so there was this sense of people distrusting this new technology. Yeah, great distrust of it. Yeah, that's very true. It was high tech at the time. And in fact, when the Western Wind is set, there were, were no confession boxes in, in Britain at that time. They hadn't made it here yet. So it was this kind of you know, startling innovation <laughs> brought in sort of by the parish priest who had this, this idea that, that maybe confession could be a private affair rather than in public view in the nave of the church so yeah that I suppose there is that that element of tech yeah I hadn't I, I hadn't thought about that either Alex so <laughs> you Lucy go. please release Sam from my terrible speculations <laughs> not at all actually what I'm going to ask Sam to do is just read a bit out if you don't mind so that, that all the listeners can hear a bit of what it sounds like. I was wondering, Sam, if you might read the, the first couple of paragraphs from Orbit Four Ascending, which gives a lovely sense of one of the it's one of the astronauts watching a bit of the world go past. Yeah, sure. In the new morning of today's fourth Earth orbit, the Saharan dust sweeps to the sea in hundred-mile ribbons. Hazy, pale, green, shimmering sea, hazy tangerine land. This is Africa chiming with light. You can almost hear it, this light, from inside the craft. Grand Canaria's steep radial gorges pile the island up like a sandcastle hastily built. And when the Atlas Mountains announce the end of the desert, clouds appear in the shape of a shark whose tail flips at the southern coast of Spain, whose fin tip nudges the southern Alps, whose nose will dive any moment into the Mediterranean 
Albania and Montenegro are velvet soft with mountain. Where do the boundaries sit, Sean thinks as he moves past the window. He tries to place it all, Montenegro, Serbia, Hungary, Romania. He can never remember the exact arrangement. You could spend your days, your entire orbiting life, with your Rand McNally atlas and your maps of the stars. You could do no work whatsoever. You could abandon it all just to look. You could know the earth inside out in its little hollow of space. You could never really comprehend the stars, but the earth you could know in the way you know another person, in the way he came quite studiedly and determinedly to know his wife, with a yearning that's hungry and selfish. He wishes to know it inch by inch. Oh, thank you so much. Wonderful. I feel like you know it pretty well now, Sam, having, <laughs> I having do. studied it so much. And do you feel the way that, that the astronauts and the cosmonauts feel? Is that You always get that idea and you get it strongly in the book that they feel very protective of it. They could sort of see how fragile it is. That's one of the main themes that comes up when you read accounts by astronauts is this feeling of protectiveness. Yeah, almost I feel it's a responsibility, theirs and everybody's, to protect this, this thing, this really vulnerable planet that's quite alone, really, you know, just bafflingly orbiting <laughs> the sun. Um, and, yeah, but protectiveness is, I mean, I feel that as a human being. I don't know what it's like to experience that, that sense of protectiveness from the perspective of space, obviously, but I feel it from the perspective of my desk looking at YouTube videos of space. Definitely, yeah, this is a huge responsibility that we that we have, and I think a lot of astronauts come back to Earth and take up work around climate change and become advocates for for all sorts of climate-related issues. So I, I can completely understand that. How could you not? I guess. Well, listen, thank you so much for talking to us about Orbital, um, which, as you say, is just out. And it's just it was really wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Still to come on the show. Alice Albinia's journey through the Britannias, from the Isle of Thanet to Bermuda. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Well, we hope you enjoyed that orbit around the Earth, but now we're returning to home soil and water, courtesy of Alice Albinia's The Britannias, a tour of the archipelago in which what is sometimes referred to as the mainland was once anything but. Albinia starts off in Orkney and then travels via Lindisfarne, the Isle of Thanet and Bermuda before ending up, in all places, with the King's coronation on what used to be an island itself. Miranda France has reviewed the book in this week's TLS and joins me now. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Alex. Well, what a fascinating odyssey. And I know that it took her years to write this book. What did she find and and why did she go I suppose let's start there she started in Orkney why did she want to leave she was already quite an intrepid traveler having written a book about India and I'm not sure that she expected this to be quite such an odyssey I think perhaps she was she certainly when she went to Orkney she was expecting to spend a few months there two or three months and uh, she ended up spending more than a year when she first arrived she had a baby And in the introduction to the book, she says the baby is now turning 10. So essentially, it's been a decade of traveling around the British Isles and and researching them and writing about them, during which she has all kinds of personal ups and downs as well, which she weaves into into the history. So it's it's a very fascinating take. And on Orkney, you say, she found herself just doing all sorts of jobs and she was very good at kind of turning her hand to anything. And it's a kind of, I suppose, a sort of gig economy where you have to do many, many gigs to make a living. And she did. Yeah, she compares it to uh, the actors in a, in a travelling theatre show where everybody has to take on different roles. And she also compares it to research into uh, Neolithic monuments in Orkney and an idea that part of the purpose of these great big monuments was to give people a sort of communal activity to to bring people together in a focused piece of work so in a way she's emulating that experience by 
getting stuck in. She works in a in a hotel. She teaches, I think. She does various jobs and finds herself very connected to her Neolithic predecessors. And what sense did she have, I wonder, of the islands of Britain, and some of them are much further flung than others, before her journey? I was really intrigued by that comparison you mentioned in your piece that she's made between Manchester and Minchinhampton, i.e. the population disparities between the islands and what we call the mainland are very different now compared to the earlier periods of human habitation. Yes, well, we call it the mainland, but she finds on various islands that people call it all kinds of other things, you know, sort of over there. Or <laughs> it's not it's not as relevant to them as we might think it would be. I think what she found was some of it's fairly obvious in a way, was that the islands were the first landing place for people coming to these shores and that they have all kinds of merits. They're often very rich in fishing, for example. Uh, it's easy to turn them into fortresses. It's easy to keep people out of them and to bring in the people that you want to have in them, which is why, you know, Columba established a monastery on Iona and was able to to draw from around Europe people to to study there. So she coins this word islandness, which is a sort of way of thinking that often seems to, through her understanding, to be very inventive. I wrote in the piece almost sort of magical thinking. She discovers these Neolithic chambers, which are, uh, she calls dreaming chambers, which is an, an extraordinary idea. So the sort of liminal quality of the islands being almost partly kind of melting into, <laughs> into the sea or into some sort of not quite official uh, territory, I think is what attracted her. So you have a sort of elemental feeling I guess I mean the dreaming chambers were they places where people went to have kind of different experiences from from their sort of everyday lives well I think this is probably mostly on Anglesey which was the druid stronghold and um, it's thought that that people may have gone to study from all over Europe um, to study with the druids and certainly Anglesey was the sort of spiritual heart of Britain before the arrival of the Romans um, so, I mean, I confess that I didn't know very much about the Druids, apart from, you know, what I'd read in Asterix. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it really, it was, it was a revelation to me that it was such an important, that Anglesey was so important to um, the British sense of self. I mean, if one can talk at all of British, it doesn't really make sense. But, but that the assault on Anglesey by the Romans was what um, roused Boudicca over in the east to confront the troops, that this was felt to be such a sacred place that it, it mustn't it mustn't be attacked. It's interesting. I, I realise I drive across Anglesey occasionally if I'm driving from Ireland to north of England and, and arrive at Holyhead on the boat. And you do go across the Britannia Bridge to, to get to, you know, to Wales, to the Wales, rest of, yeah. of Wales. Uh, and there is a different sort of feeling to it. Uh, and it's certainly true coming from, you know, living in an island nation, myself a smaller island, People in Ireland, the island of Ireland, certainly don't refer, at least in the Republic, to, to the UK as the mainland no, either. But not, there, no. there's very much a different kind of feeling to it. And there is a sense of separateness. But, of course, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, modern ways of life and modern industries 
have changed lives and lifestyles on the islands enormously. And she spends a bit of time, doesn't she, on a super trawler. And of course, the business of fishing is completely transformed uh, by these enormous vessels that can catch huge amounts of fish very, very quickly. What did she find on the super trawler? Well, I think she was rather entranced by it. She talks about watching the display on the dashboard is not the right word, is it? (laughs) (laughs) On deck. But she also compares it to, she's very aware that they're trawling the same seas that the Vikings would have been voyaging across hundreds of years beforehand. And so she, she makes all of these connections that are quite appealing and persuasive, really, make you feel that in some ways, you know, we haven't changed. There is a continuity and she talks about Shetland being the biggest roundabout in the world because of all of the, the traffic around it, the naval traffic, um, sea traffic. So it's a different perspective to see the country from, from the sea. Yes, entirely. I mean, one of the things that has changed, and this was a really interesting part of, of your review and evidently something you found very interesting about her book, is her focus on ancient female-led communities and their decline in the face of the patriarchy. And you say, again, she's very persuasive on this. She has this sense of very established communities being led by women, doesn't she? She does, and she feels they've been written out of history. She she mentions um, St Mildred in Thanet, important abbey there. I mean, I think there still is an abbey with um, with her name. But she feels that she she was rather sort of written out of history by Bede. Um, there's also references she finds in Greek literature to to islands that were matriarchies. I mean, the, I think in both Greek and Latin literature, the idea of Britain as a sort of wild and barbaric place uh, is common. I mean, you know, some Romans apparently didn't believe that Britain existed at all. They thought it was a sort of a mythical a mythical place. And the thought of communities being led by wild and barbarous women was perhaps part of that sort of mythology. So it's hard to know exactly how much we can read into some of the evidence that she finds. She also mentions these Sheelina gigs, which are a sort of female gargoyle, which she finds in various parts of the country and takes that to be evidence of the importance of women in pagan Britain. But again, I don't know if they could just be sort of slightly misogynistic gargoyles. It's, it's very hard to know. Yes, we sort of think of them as, as a kind of, I suppose, a counterpart to the Green Man type yes. monuments, don't we? But I guess their exact nature is, is, I imagine, much discussed. But she does find you know, religious communities where then the patriarchy kind of takes over and women are completely excluded, doesn't she? Yes, including on Iona, uh, which Columba um, wanted to make a male sanctuary, apparently. But she finds evidence of islands nearby, smaller islands, um, which may have remained as matriarchies of a kind. I think she feels that Christianity pushed women out of these roles and then um, perhaps with the Reformation and and, and successive changes um, the patriarchy was further entrenched. They are kind of a 
of interest, you know, sort of repeatedly, you see all sorts of books written about them, including in imaginative books. I'm thinking of something like Benjamin Meyer's recent novel, Cuddy, uh, about St Cuthbert, which I just enjoyed enormously. Uh, and she's a, herself written a novel, hasn't she, Quen? I hope I'm saying it correctly. Yes, yeah, she has, which is about a matriarchy. I think that she, I mean, one of the interesting things about her is that she feels these uh, these losses to the historical record, especially of women's experience, so so strongly that you almost sort of feel this grief in the book. And um, I think she she perhaps broke off to write Quen because she wanted to restore, in some way, a kind of idea of matriarchy to the record, to the historical record. Also interesting is the fact that she's not just going around the British Isles. She gets to Bermuda, she goes to Tortola. And of course, lots of these places, as per somewhere much nearer the Isle of Man, are are a sort of haven for tax exiles on it, which obviously doesn't you know, doesn't sit easily with her. What does she find when she goes a bit further afield? Well, I think she found Bermuda quite depressing and that it was very influenced by the idea of money making and tax havens and sort of relying on being able to use British courts and British law to back that up. It didn't seem to be a very happy experience and she makes similar points about you know the Isle of Man for example and um, the Channel Islands, Jersey and Guernsey also having arrangements which favour the protection of money in a way that um, that doesn't sit very very easily alongside social problems. So essentially they become I suppose kind of microcosms of you know societies in which there are great differences between you know great wealth inequality but you have it in such a, a on a smaller scale and perhaps the the extremes are much more pronounced. Yes I think that's true and the idea that people are are, are able to to move there because of their because of their status their financial status. There is also very kind of entertaining sounding parts of her journey and I, I I want to know a bit more about the Isle of Thanish and the Sanger's stage show in Margate which sounded fascinating. <laughs> yes well again I think a lot of people wouldn't think of um, Thanet as being an island because it isn't anymore. It used to be separated from England by a river and it was known as the Isle of the Dead and of course it's where um, St Augustine landed bringing Christianity to England. So it was a a route into Britain um, from Europe. The stage show that you mentioned, they're a group of travellers aren't they who are going who go every year to Margate to put on a show and are sort of riding into town with their whole show with them with their vehicles and their paraphernalia and she goes along with them and um, and mucks in and and becomes a uh, dresses up and and joins in and finds them very um entertaining but they're very clear about their own history being quite different from Romanese, for example. Actually, they're called showmen. They're not travellers. They say that they're they're cousins to travellers, but not the same as travellers. And it's quite an uneasy relationship between the two communities, I, I gather. It appears to be, yes. There are so many communities in Britain that have hundreds of years of history and of mutual antagonism or relationships that... Um, really have their roots in something very ancient and that those 
feelings persist. Evidently, you know, a lot of, as you say in in the piece, there is a lot of kind of personal material here. Her life is and her marriage is is going through ups and downs, and she has two small children in her care as well. Do you get the sense that that was very much a part of the journey, that it was informed by her own personal situation? Yes, she rather conveys the idea that a kind of crisis about about the status of women in British history, in history in general, has somehow reflected a crisis in her own life, perhaps to do with her own feelings about, about the roles of men and women. So she does sort of bring it in. I mean, she's also rather um, mysterious about it. She says that she's only ever worn a wooden wedding ring and um, when she's in Anglesey, her wooden wedding ring breaks and she takes that to be rather symbolic. So she does make it a part of the story without really going into any details. And she and we know that by the end of the book, she's um, now got a new partner and is experiencing the joy of being newly in love, which also seems to to colour a little bit her experience um, as she I think by then she's in the in the Hebrides. So whereas I suppose once people might have wanted to keep their personal feelings out of uh, historical accounts, for her, it's, it feels very natural to let what she feels about the history be affected by how she's feeling personally and her own quite powerful connection to the research that she's done. And of course, that then concludes, as I mentioned in the beginning and, and you say in the piece, ends with the king's coronation in Westminster, of course, which was once an island in the Thames, not something I knew at all. And then you get that sense of of the great pageantry and the heritage and the lineage and how much it is connected to this idea of, I suppose, the scepter dial. Yes. Yes, I also hadn't known that it was an island. I think it's called Thorny Island and there is still a Thorny Island Association or society, which uh, she joined and, uh, and went to a few meetings of. And it does, yes, for me, it sort of felt rather a stirring example of our history as an island nation, a nation of islands. But because the author is, is quite sort of anti, uh, well, a Republican and anti-patriarchy, she's not, she's not quite so stirred by it. <laughs> No, she's not. She's not waving her. her no, but she does. She does describe. Yeah, she's definitely not waving, but she describes it very well. It sounds absolutely fascinating. But you know, coming back to this idea of the island nation, I mean, it's something that has become a real political hot potato, or rather, it's re-emerged as this great signifier you know, during the. Brexit referendum and subsequently as a point of pride I suppose and as an idea of keeping people out and you know it's it's fascinating the way it it will be what you want it to be it's a, a place of projection isn't it this idea of the island. Yes and I suppose what she shows is that there is no one idea. I mean, I was quite interested to read that all of the Scottish islands voted against Scottish independence, so voted no in the referendum in 2014, mm. which was uh, in- interesting to me. That All of these communities, islands, some of them bigger than others, have got their own quite strong ideas about how they feel. And um, there is no one story to be told about it. So one of the interesting things I found was that in 2014, Cornwall won minority status by claiming it was almost an an island. 
so there is as as albinia identifies there's a kind of islandness there's an island mentality there are places that have been islands and no longer are like thanet or westminster and there are places that aren't really islands but feel as if they ought to be like cornwall so really very interesting to think about what an island is what a group of people who feel themselves to be separated by water uh, how that has an effect on on the psyche and makes gives people a different a different identity we were just talking weren't we before we started about samantha harvey's book the western wind samantha yeah. who, who we were interviewing earlier on the podcast uh, and how much we both admired it I and loved of course it. it's absolutely yeah. about a tiny community cut off by a river yes. they don't have a bridge who completely feel that they're an island so yes, it, yes. The, the shifting nature of the island mentality is is really fascinating yes and at one point in the book albinia says it's as much a book about water as it is about land about the effect of of living surrounded by water well thank you so much for telling us about it i just got the impression that it, it was you know really fascinated you and and it's fascinated us thank you very much miranda thank you thank you Ellie. thank you have time for this week our thanks go to samantha harvey and miranda france and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye <laughs>